interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Thank you. Um, some people in back had trouble hearing at the first session. Um, did you? How? Is it better? Everybody? <laughs> okay. So in my first talk, um, which ended just a few minutes ago, <laughs> I offered a description of the present-day American university. It holds for the European by and large as well. Not of the university in general, but of those aspects of the present-day university especially relevant to our topic. I approached the topic autobiographically of what it was like for me 50 years ago and the changes that I lived through. Um, an answer to responses from Bob and so forth. I have to admit that the changes may appear more dramatic to a philosopher than they do to people in the natural sciences. But that's what I am, right? So, um, okay. So now I'd like to uh, do the main thing. Um, my understanding of the calling of the Christian scholar in the university as we find it today. And when I have to put that briefly, I put it like this. To think with a Christian mind and to speak with a Christian voice within the university. Um, okay, so once again, I think it's helpful to refresh our memories, and I'll just pick up some of, pick up and carry a little bit further what I was saying previously. Um, so this hierarchy, hacking order, and Ray, you were saying, in mechanical sciences, it still looks like that. There's, there's still that angle for you. You're not quite, probably, you're probably not as disdainful of literary studies as people were 50 years ago, I bet. But I'm not saying I'm disdainful. <laughs> okay. So, so suppose you you work with that pecking order in terms of how well a given discipline is actually practicing the scientific method. And suppose you think that that scientific method has at least these two hallmarks to it. It's, it's, um, it's generically human, or can be and should be generically human. And in this generically human enterprise, you get hypotheses from wherever and you test them by reference to um, sense experience. Um, reason and possibly introspection, though that was always highly controversial. Okay. Suppose that's how you think of the enterprise. But suppose that you were also a Christian. What role would your Christian convictions have in the enterprise thus understood? And I think the answer has to be, I'll qualify it a little bit shortly, I think the answer has to be that they have no role within the enterprise as such. I mean, the idea was to shut off all your particularistic identities, right, and just operate as a generic human. So they've got no role within the enterprise as such. Which means 
that the role is going to have to be some kind of a supplement. What else could it be? And it seems to me when one looks back, one sees Christians adopting a lot of such supplementaries, what I think of now as supplementary strategies. Here are some of them. And, and look, I don't think that these are inherently bad. Okay, One supplementary strategy over and over is to accept your discipline as it is, and then to frame it in a larger theological framework. You're going to have to combat the idea that theology is down on the pits, but once you've combated that, then you've set it within a larger framework. That's what you were suggesting. So, um, I've been in other discussions in which Christians worked at showing parallels between developments in this, their discipline and some aspect of Christian theology. I remember it being a science and religion seminar on the West Coast once in the Berkeley area uh, in which the papers were pointing out similarities between recent developments in theoretical physics and the Trinity. I thought it was kind of bizarre, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, okay. Um, and over the years, of course, what Christians have done is engage in the discipline, then add Bible study and worship. So these are supplementation strategies. Those working in Christian colleges, I remember being at a conference of Lutheran educators, and they said the distinctive of the Lutheran college was their, their attention to student formation. That uh, other, and then a particular Lutheran take on student formation. So you did everything basically the same, and then you're a Lutheran, a peculiarly, peculiarly Lutheran student formation. And you can predict how that went. Then there are other people saying, and what is that? Um, <laughs> so many of these scripts you could, you know, sort of write for yourself. <coughs> um, now, these strategies of supplementation have not died out, it seems to me. Uh, between, 20, uh, between, between 10 and 20 years ago, uh, there was a great deal of talk among Christian scholars about integration of faith and learning. It was a buzzword. Uh, now, I may be mistaken, but it seems to me the buzz of integration talk has died down a bit. might be wrong about that. Um, it was and is my impression that the people who worked with integration were still basically adopting a supplementation model. Um, granted, the imagery, you know, the visual imagery of integration is a bit different from that of supplementation. But integration, in my experience with, oh, Christian colleges for many years, I think they've died out, had, uh, would hold one week, two week summer seminars in which members of the faculty were invited to uh, talk about how to integrate their discipline with Christianity, with their Christian faith. Um, the imagery that came to my head was always, there are these two things, um, scholarship, your, your discipline, its results, and how you act in it and behave in it and so forth, and this other thing, your Christian conviction. And then, look, I come from farm country of Minnesota. My imagery was, imagery was always that you're trying to use a, Baylor twine to um, <laughs> tie these two together. Uh, most of you don't know what Baylor twine is. So, um, so, to, so to my eyes, the results of these integration sessions, seminars, 
looked no different from the proposals about supplementation that were being made before the integ word integration became a buzzword. Um, now, I said that the basic strategy was supplementation. I want to give two qualifications now of, of how Christians responded to this imagery of the universe. Two qualifications. Sometimes what happened is this. Christians working in some discipline found themselves confronted with a chunk of learning that really did seem to them to conflict. There was no way to get around it. So mere supplementation would not work in this case. I've been at conferences in which the response to that, I'm thinking especially of a conference of legal theorists, and we were talking about the Chicago School of Legal Theory, which likes to think about the law wholly in, term, in economic terms, which seems to me preposterous. But um, uh, the response of some Christian legal scholars there was, yes, that's true, but that was incompetent scholarship that I was talking about. And it was incompetent for the very reason that it was animated by principles which were clearly hostile to Christianity. So this conference occurred at Baylor. So the response in this case was, if there's conflict, it's because there's some kind of incompetence in this body of alien scholarship. And the incompetence just is the insertion of non-Christian principles into the, into the discipline. Um, okay, so the charge that if there's conflict, it's due to the incompetence. I mean, they may have been very bright. But you see why the charge of incompetence? Because the idea is that you're supposed to lay all your distinctives at the door of the academy, get rid of biases, and this is the insertion of a bias. And the bias may have been by bright people, but that didn't make any difference. It was incompetent. Uh, second, there's a second way in which uh, I exaggerated, a second non-supplementary way. Sometimes when Evident conflict turned up. Christian scholars, instead of saying that was a sign that bias had erupted illegitimately into the alien scholarship, said, yes, what we've got to do is revise our self-understanding, our understanding of ourselves as Christians, until the conflict has disappeared. So one says that Christianity deals with You've heard all the strategy. Christianity deals with values instead of facts. It deals with the supernatural instead of the natural, and, and so forth. As a rough and ready generalization, the charge of incompetence, I think, has been more typical of conservative and evangelical Christians. And revising your understanding of Christianity until it accords with what look like reputable results in the particular discipline has more, been more typical of liberal Christians. Okay, so I think I'm being accurate there. Either supplementation to what's going on in the discipline, or if you're confronted with clear cases of conflict, to charge it with incompetence on the part of the scholars or revise your Christian views. I want now to sketch out an alter my alternative. And once again, I'm going to... Do it autobiographically. I think this will help 
more than talking about it in total abstraction. So in the early 1960s, I was a young professor teaching philosophy at Calvin College. We needed somebody to teach the course in aesthetics, philosophy of art. My colleagues, none of my colleagues wanted to teach the course, so they turned to me. I had never myself taken a course in aesthetics, philosophy of art, but I did have a long-standing interest in art, and so they thought that that qualified me to teach the course in aesthetics. So I said, under some pressure, okay. So I took as my textbook a recently published book, very recently published book, by really a fine American philosopher of art, aesthetician, Monroe Beardsley. He just called it philosophy of art, or aesthetics. After teaching enthusiastically from Beardsley's book for a few years, something about Beardsley's approach began to make me feel uneasy. Beardsley took for granted that visual art is for looking at, music is for listening to, poetry is for attentive reading in libraries, and so forth. And I'd taken this for granted as well. But I had recently been appointed by my denomination, for reasons that I never understood, to its liturgical revision committee. And that brought liturgical art up front to my attention. And shortly it began, I mean, so what's new? Shortly it occurred to me that hymns are not for listening to. They're for the entire congregation to sing. Big insight, right? Big, big insight. And though the Psalms are undeniably poetry, in the liturgy you don't all sit there just listening to Psalms, but you sing them or you recite them communally. Big deal, big insight. So something wasn't quite right. Couldn't fit together very snugly between what I was teaching in my aesthetics class from the Beersley's book, Beersley book, and my experience in church. Well, in this case you might say liturgical art is inferior. So inferior that, oh, why bother when you're teaching aesthetics? Yeah, kids sing, my kids sang little songs when they played hopscotch. But I'm not going to talk about hopscotch songs in my aesthetics course, obviously, because it's, it's, you know, it's not worth it. It's not noble enough. Okay, maybe, but I couldn't swallow anybody saying liturgical art is, because it is liturgical art, inferior. That that was more than I could swallow. So I found myself forced to ask why Beardsley was talking about art the way he did. Why was he talking about art as if art was music was was just for listening to, and poetry and and uh, visual art just was for looking at and so forth? Why why was he thinking about art like that? I had come to the point where I no longer thought that he was just drinking in the facts of the case. Man, that, that didn't fit as a description of what was going on. And I knew Beardsley personally. I knew him well enough to know, in fact, that he knew about liturgical art. It was not as if I told him about it and he had said, my gosh, I never heard about hymns. Um, he knew about hymns. There was a certain way of thinking about art that was shaping his discussion. Right? And I had been thinking the same way. And I felt that what I had to do was find out what that way of thinking about it was that 
led him to say these things, and me to have gone along with him, and everybody else to say the same thing. I had to find out what that way of thinking was and where it came from and what I thought about it. Look, I'm embarrassed to say that it took me a long time to figure it out, altogether about 30 years. I'm embarrassed because it seems to me now utterly obvious. How could I have been so blind? Uh, the other way to think of it is the grip of a certain way of thinking on our way of thinking <laughs> can be very powerful, and it, and it can take a long time to undo it, and it comes with little pieces and snatches and so forth. Here's my view now, 30 years later. My view is that what has shaped almost all thinking about the arts by intellectuals and academics over the past two and a half centuries is what I now call the grand modern narrative of the arts. Really pompous title, but grand modern narrative of the arts. On this occasion, I'm going to give you only the barest skeleton of the narrative. It goes as follows. Once upon a time, art was in the service of interests outside itself. This is the story. Art was in the service of interests outside itself, especially in the service of princes and bishops, state and church. But then in the 18th century, this is the story, but then in the 18th century, art finally came into its own by being freed from external bondage and freed for following its own internal artistic dynamics. And the idea was that art is liberated from bondage to external interests and freed to come into its own when art is used as an object of perceptual contemplation instead of for what bishops want out of it and what princes want out of it. When it becomes for listening, for looking, for reading, then it's liberated. A progressivist narrative about art, right? All these years of bondage, and now it's liberated. One example of the classic modern narrative of modernity is representing liberation. That progressivist narrative, which is already a pretty grand story about art and humanity's odyssey, finally coming into its own liberated self in the 18th century, shortly got caught up, caught up into a yet grander narrative, the romantic narrative. So now, the romantic part of it. The romantics held that the essence of modernization is fragmentation. So I read most modern sociology as romantic sociology because the deep metaphor in sociology has been, most much of it, fragmentation. Modernity is representing fragmentation, the breaking up of old communities and so forth. So the romantics said that the essence of modernization is fragmentation. And they held that the drive towards modernization is rationalization. Asking, instead of doing things the way they've been done, asking what's a better way to do them. Instead of marrying as marrying has always been done, 
A lot of you young people here, I bet, your mother has said, well, the way we got married was so-and-so. And you said, but I don't care to hear about how you got married. We think it's better to do it this way. Okay, rationalization. Asking, reasoning for the better way of doing things. Um, that's the theory, that the dynamic standard theory, that the dynamic behind modernization is um, rational, rationalization and that it produces fragmentation. However, said the Romantics, in art, we have an exception, a social exception. Art is not the product of rationality, but of imagination and emotion, self-expression. Almost all of you who were taught art in grade schools, visual art, the ideology behind it was self-expression, right? You were taught to express yourself. And then there was floating in the air the idea that once you get of age, dampers are laid on your self-expression. So you could produce really great, fascinating art when you were a second grader, and you'd become incompetent by the time you got to be a senior in high school because your self-expression had been inhibited. Standard view. Um, so art is not the product of rationality, but of emotion and imagination. And furthermore, furthermore, a work of art is a unity. It's not fragmentary. So art is the great social exception. It's not rationality at work. And there's unity here as opposed to fragmentation. Um, and so it came about that from... 1800 onwards, roughly, or earlier than that, already in the 1775s, I'm thinking of um, later. Uh, over and over, writers about the arts have broken out into religious language when talking about art. Given that it's the social exception, that here we're released from the smothering bonds of rationality, and here we have an image of true unity as, to, as opposed to fragmentation. Religious language is... Salvific language is right on your doorstep, right? It's going to be difficult to resist it, and lots of writers have not resisted it. Have used religious language and laid salvific expectations, religious expectations on art. So a few years ago, a person teaching English literature in a Christian college put it to me like this. Poetry, she said, knits together the tattered fragments of our existence. You could not have a better expression of it. Poetry knits together the tattered fragments of our existence. Classic romanticism. She wasn't saying that to criticize it. This was her view. It would have been too cruel for me. But I wanted to say, I thought Jesus Christ did that. <laughs> but she had never, she had never, she was oblivious to, to what she was saying. Okay, so I've devoted my almost all of my writing about the arts over the past 20 years to attacking this grand narrative. Um, as some of you here know. Why as a Christian find those religious expectations that the narrative attaches to art just unacceptable? And I find, I find this emotion of liturgical art unacceptable. Um, and on some occasions, fair number of occasions, 
I've made it clear why I, as a Christian, cannot accept the narrative. I've got other reasons for not accepting it. But, but look, I've not been content as a philosopher, Christian philosopher. I've not been content to stand on my Hyde Park podium and declare, here I stand, I can do no other, I cannot accept this grand narrative, and so forth. Um, what I've done my best to do is to find arguments against it that my colleagues in aesthetics would find compelling. Or if not compelling, at least worthy of being taken seriously. And I've tried to work out an alternative to the grand narrative, an alternative way that articulates how art looks to my eye, my Christian eye, and how I hope it looks to lots of other eyes as well. Okay, autobiographical. I could have taken other examples from my career, but this one maybe does is better than any. Uh, I take that to be, from my own career, an example of thinking with a Christian mind and speaking with a Christian voice in the contemporary academy. Now, the image of integration strikes me as completely infelicitous for describing what I was doing. Integration? I wasn't trying to integrate two separate things, tie them together with bailing twine. Nor was I declaring that almost everybody who's written about the arts over the past 250 years has been incompetent. I myself think it would be crazy to call Monroe Beardsley incompetent. If, I mean, this... He's, he was really competent. Incompetent because he'd allowed, you know, an anti-Christian bias to seep into his thought. And neither was I saying, gee, I guess that's what everybody in the field believes, so I'd better get with it. Revise my own views, Christian views, my views about liturgical art, so it fits in snugly with the grand modern narrative. Uh, and I guess I'd better start saying poetry knits together the tattered fragments of our existence. <laughs> Um, I did the opposite. Um, I thought that fidelity to Jesus Christ and the Christian scriptures required that I rethink modern aesthetics. Um, not rethink everything about it, but in fact, rethink, in this case, the, the big shaping narrative. Okay. Pretty much everything that I would say abstractly and generally about speaking with a Christian mind and uh, thinking with a Christian mind and speaking with a Christian voice in the contemporary university can be extracted from that example. So let me highlight three or four systematic points. What I really do is highlighting aspects of it and then throwing it out for discussion. First this. Um, we need a word for what goes on in the academic disciplines. We don't have a good one in English. Wissenschaft and in German. <laughs> And I can proceed to talk about Wissenschaft. That's a little bit pretentious. So let me call, them, call it all theoretical inquiry, even though that doesn't fit a lot of literary studies very well, but let's call it theoretical inquiry. I have found it enormously helpful to think of theoretical inquiry as a, this actually picks up on something that Bob said, as I recall, to think of theoretical inquiry as a long, enduring social practice changes over the centuries, partly because of internal developments, partly because of external developments. These changes in the practice of theoretical inquiry, including changing views as to the goal of the enterprise, 
and changing uses to the criteria for excellence. So a modern biologist thinks of the goal of the enterprise very differently from how Plato thought, and Plato and Aristotle thought of the goal of the enterprise, but it's, a, it's the same enterprise. Sometimes these changes, alterations happen almost indiscernibly over the years, centuries, decades. And sometimes, of course, they are the subject of intense controversy, as they were in the, uh, in the 17th and 18th century in the natural sciences, for example. The alternative to thinking of theoretical inquiry is a long, enduring, ever-changing social practice. The alternative is to think of it as having an essence. And to hold that that essence has been slowly revealed over the centuries. And those who think along the revelation of its essence lines almost always hold that 18th century, 17th and 18th century developments in natural science finally reveal the essence of theoretical inquiry after being hidden from view in the platonic form of essences all these centuries it finally was revealed to Newton uh, as to Newton and Boyle what the real essence of, of science is. And the idea is that the scientific method is that essence which got revealed. Max Weber thought along those essentialist lines. And I still remember years ago when I taught a course, was teaching a course in ancient philosophy, a really fine historian of ancient philosophy, W.K. Guthrie, in his book on the pre-Socratics, raised the question when he was talking about Thales, the first, sort of the first of the pre-Socratic philosophers, raised the question whether we could rightly see in Thales the first manifestation of the, of the scientific method. Um, <laughs> here, here, here was, could, could we say that here the essence was being revealed for the first time? I now think that that essentialist view is bizarre. It's, there's not some eternal essence. I think there is this social practice which changes on us. Changes, as I say, in response to internal developments and external uh, technological developments and religious developments and uh, technological demands and social economic demands and so forth. And so the practice changes over the years. Okay. And that you're in my calling then is to engage in the practice as it is now um, as Christians. And incidentally, the, you will, may have noticed that the grand modern narrative about the arts that I sketched out also thinks about the arts in that essentialist way. Lo and behold, in the 18th century, finally was revealed what, what, art, re, what art really is, always previously had been concealed by bondage and so forth. I think the same way about art, a long enduring social practice which changes in response to all kinds of things, filled with controversies as to what art is all about and what it should be doing, what it shouldn't be doing, and so forth. No essence. That is the first point. Second, I think the idea that we should shuck off our identities and worldviews in the nithics of the academy and practice learning as generic human beings has to be rejected as an impossibility. It never goes like that, and it can't go like that. You can't shut them off. 
I entered the social, the shared social practice of contemporary philosophy is who I am. A Christian, reared in Minnesota, lover of the arts, committed to justice, and so forth. That's how I enter. I don't shuck off any of that. And as I engage in this shared practice of philosophy, this shared social practice, I meet philosophers, some of whose identity is very much like mine. Well, not quite that combination. Christian, reared in southwest Minnesota, lover of the arts. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, various, various parts of that identity. I meet philosophers whose identity is very much like mine. And I meet philosophers whose identity is very different from mine. For women instead of men, um, of color instead of white, um, non-practicing Jews or secularists instead of Christians and so forth. As I see it, what happens then is that with these identities that we have, we each address the philosophical issues. Listening, talking, arguing, going off by ourselves for a while to think things through, maybe with our buddies, coming back, and so forth. And the phrase that I use for the enterprise I've come to use is dialogic, dialogical pluralism. A plurality of whatever, worldviews, comprehensive doctrines to use Rawlsian language, engaging and interacting with each other and with the world, not just with each other. Dialogical pluralism. One of the overarching goals of the dialogue is to reach agreement, not just to stand on our podia and Lutherian fashion and say, here I stand, I can do no else, to reach agreement. On all sorts of issues, fundamental and non-fundamental, we do not start from agreement, though we try to reach agreement. And for philosophers anyway, but for people in other disciplines as well, we, we live with the fact that very often we do not succeed in reaching agreement. We live with that fact. And we come back a year later and talk again, and sometimes we reach agreement, and sometimes we still don't, trying to find the, my image is pry points, the, 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 the points where you can pry, where I can say, but Dick, an actual Jewish friend here, Dick Bernstein, but Dick, you're forgetting that. A point such that Dick says, yeah, boy, huh, I hadn't thought about that. I'm going to have to go home and think about that one. To find, find those points. Third, third thing I'd like to say, that my goal, as I see it as a Christian philosopher, is to be faithful. Faithful to my Lord and to the Christian scriptures. I say that because all too often I find people assuming that the goal of Christian learning is to be different. To produce something different from what everybody else is saying. I think that when you reflect on that as a goal, you see that it's hopeless. Um... You say something and somebody agrees with you and say, my gosh, boy, I guess I have to, uh, I have to try again to find something different. Hopeless. And not only hopeless, but theologically untenable. So the goal is not difference, but fidelity. I think there'll be plenty of differences when Christian philosophers, uh, scholars are faithful. Don't more difference in philosophy and history than in physics and chemistry, no doubt. Be interesting to reflect on why that's true. And fourth and last, I think we have to be open to the fact that fidelity takes different forms at different junctures, lots of different forms at different junctures. The example I gave from my own work in philosophy of art was a matter of the content of the field. 
But sometimes fidelity takes more of the form of priorities, of a different assessment of what's important and what, what you should be looking into and as opposed to what your colleagues are all looking into and so forth. You judge priorities differently. And always fidelity will take the form of treating your colleagues with dignity. I think a hallmark of the Christian scholar is that you treat everybody with dignity. You don't demean anybody. You disagree, but do not demean. You honor them all. That took concrete form for me once in a Yale seminar. I don't know if either uh, Brent or uh, uh, Andrew was there. Talking about Augustine, and somebody had made utterly dismissive comment about Augustine. Um, so I finally said to her, Amy, would you have said the same thing if Augustine were sitting right across the table from you? She said, oh, no. Well, what I wanted to say is that same dumb thing, but I didn't say that. Um, you see, she was not, she was demeaning Augustine. It's just, it's not how you should act. Okay, enough of my talk. <laughs>